Welcome to Your Brain On by Salience Learning. I'm Karen Foster. And I'm Krista Gerhard. We're really excited to have an incredible guest here today. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Clark Quinn. He's a recognized leader in learning technology strategy, helping organizations take advantage of information systems to meet learning, knowledge, and performance needs. He combines a deep background in cognitive science, a rich understanding of computer and network capabilities, reinforced through practical application with considerable management expertise and a track record of strategic vision and successful innovations. And he's also one of my favorite authors. So it's truly a pleasure and a privilege to have Dr. Clark Quinn join us today. And so Dr. Quinn, welcome to Your Brain On. Well, thank you very much for that gracious introduction. Uh, very nice and a pleasure to be here with you today. Awesome. Well, at Salience, as most of our listeners will know, uh, we are passionate about bringing the science of learning to the business of science. And your particular organization, Quinnovation, um, is committed to that as well. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what is Quinnovation. Um, Quinnovation is literally just my vehicle for going out and assisting organizations. So it's, it's me. <laughs> uh, but that is a, a deep background in cognitive science. Uh, I got PhD in cognitive psychology, UC San Diego, and a long experience with using technology for learning games and mobile and stuff and bringing that to organizations to help them improve their, their designs, their design processes, their strategies to be able to leverage what they do in alignment with how our brains think, work, and learn, which you may recognize as, as well. Organization could use some help there. Absolutely. I think it's it's interesting. You connect so many great concepts that we try to help our partners with within the life sciences. And we're excited to talk a little bit more about you and your book. So we know that you recently released uh, the book Learning Science for Instructional D Designers from Cognition to Application. And we love the incorporation of the cognition component to the application. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the book and why the title. Um. Yeah, well, the title, I was looking to help people understand that you know, we're starting with the basics of cognitive science and going all the way out to what does that mean implications for what we should do. So the from cognition application. And I really wanted to focus on the cognition because people get all wound up about neural. And it turns out that's just the wrong level of, of analysis. And in fact, one section of the book is titled From Neural to Useful. <laughs> so... Uh, suggesting that's not the right level of analysis. And it's learning science for instructional designers, and I'm kind of regretting allowing them to talk me into that title because it really is learning science for instructional design. Because when you think about it, um, many more people design instruction than formal instructional designers. Coaches, for instance, should be designing stretch assignments and, and providing valuable feedback and knowing what the nuances. Teachers, parents, um, should be designing learning experiences and should know the basics. And everybody really, as things go faster and they say we have to continually learn throughout our life, it helps to know what works and what doesn't. It's such a great point. A lot of what we're seeing in, in the life sciences industry is that 
individuals outside of traditional learning and development roles are responsible for the education of others. And what you're saying is spot on, right? How can we bring the concepts within instructional design or effective communication to these individuals who are responsible for creating engagement that requires education of others? So love love the, the, the concept there. Now, you also talk about a little bit about learning science, and this is something we, it's a, a concept that's near and dear to our heart, but we'd love to hear from you how you define it. Uh, because as we know, there's a lot of terms out there that we use interchangeably, and uh, I think it'd be great to get your perspective on the definition of learning science. Sure, Krista. Um, so it's interesting, while I was a grad student, uh, my department was creating a department of cognitive science. So my degree is technically in cognitive psychology, although really it's practically applied cognitive science. But what was happening at the time, they created the Cognitive Science Society because a whole bunch of people recognized that other people were talking about thinking. And that includes linguistics and anthropology and computer science and sociology. And they said, you know, we re they're doing independent research and they're not talking to one another. How do we create an umbrella? And so they created the Cognitive Science Society and the journal and, and the department deliberately brought in philosophers and anthropologists, and linguists and psychologists together. What happened as a result of that, that was roughly in the early 80s. In the early 90s, they started saying, we have this with learning too. There's instructional designers and educational psychologists and cognitive scientists all looking at learning. So they created learning sciences as an umbrella there as a vehicle so which people looking at learning and instruction could come together and talk across their disciplines to find unified visions of what works and what doesn't. And so that's my definition of learning science is the scientific study of how we learn and, you know, on our own and in how do we guide learning as through instruction or you know, to use the latest buzzword, learning experience design, which I actually like as a, as a phrase, uh, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think the way you've described it, Dr. Quinn, is is really salient to me only because you that that cross-disciplinary approach of of linguistics, of thinking, of cognition. I think that's what when we've talked to our stakeholders in the life sciences who are who are much more narrow with respect to their particular scientific domains, right? Typically pharma is looking at biology or pharmacology, right? Much more a bit more concrete. And so while we at Salience are striving to bring this science of learning to the business of science, it is part of us educating them that this is a really a broad discipline, right? This isn't as as maybe clear cut and and sort of refined, but yet still valid from an empirical research standpoint? Well, I actually think, you know, we're getting more refined, although arguably the human brain is the most complex thing in the known universe, right? So the notion that you can systematically reliably change it in a predictable and useful way is kind of rocket science, right? But we really do have some good prescriptions, but there are new things coming up all the time. Um, this whole uh, I'm excited about stuff that Carl Friston's been talking about in terms of how we're prediction networks and how we learn to minimize the delta between what we you know, predict will happen, what actually happens. And there's interesting ramifications of that. I read, recently read a book about how that's influencing the study of emotion. And they're sort of tossing out this sort of pre, you know, fixed notion of, 
of emotion and having you know, predictable categories and instead saying we create it on the fly. It's very situated like we know cognition is as well. And then Annie Murphy Paul's coming out with a new book, The Extended Mind. It talks about how cognition is embodied and how movement can help you, um, you know, particularly for spatial topics by actually moving and, and embodying the uh, spatial dimensions. You can learn it better. It, it's a dynamic field. And yet the, the point of the book is really that we, despite some new revelations, we have a lot of great prescriptions that have been developed. And interesting, you were talking about uh, it's not as precise. We had behavioral and then cognitive and then post-cognitive approaches, and we have to account for those results still because they're robust. We have good science behind what we're doing. <laughs> so I know particularly my area of interest when you talk about uh, science, right, of the science of learning, and we have good evidence. What I guess, and I know you mentioned many in your books and many of the myths and science that I've read in previous books. I guess, what would be sort of your your top three things that that we have the mo the clearest science on that you recommend in your you know in cognition to application book? Um, well, the first thing is the importance of practice. It's amazing that uh, we have robust results on practice. The necessity of spacing, of varying, and also the right next practice, deliberate practice, um, and it should be to optimize transfer. It's what you do in the learning experience, what you practice, should be what you want to do in the in the world. The notion of bullet points and knowledge test isn't going to lead to any meaningful behavior change. So number one is getting practice right. Coupled with that is feedback. Feedback that is not just right or wrong, but if you're right, reinforce the model. And if you're wrong, identify the wrong model. And that includes having alternatives to the right answer, being misconceptions that we reliably have. We don't tend to make patterned errors. There's a little bit of randomness in our architecture, but most errors are patterned. Um, uh, sorry, I, I think I said we don't make patterned errors. We do make patterned errors. We don't make random errors. And there's some randomness in our architecture. So, um, you know, meaningful practice and good feedback. And then the, I guess the third thing I'd say is, is the emotional component, is helping people understand why they should even do this. We're really bad. We tell them this is really important, but we don't tell them why and we don't connect it to them personally. And we can do that. And we know learning sticks better when we do that. And yet, um, kind of what I'm working on now is, is formalizing that and saying, here, what are the specific prescriptions that'll help you address the emotional flow as well as the cognitive flow through a learning experience, which is why I like the phrase learning experience design, because I think it helps emphasize going beyond just the cognitive to the emotional equation. And by the way, I have to be clear, you know, many people talk, think about emotion. I'm specifically talking about uh, conation, your motivation to learn the potential for anxiety about learning to interfere with your ability to learn, the building of confidence, these affective or you know, non-cognitive components that play an important role. It's so interesting that you say that because a lot of what we try to work with our stakeholders who reside outside of learning and development is helping to find that voice around the why to drive that emotional connection to the learning. Because what we find a lot of times in a life sciences industry where you're so regulated with legal and compliance restrictions, just due to the nature of the sensitivity of the type of information that they are conveying, 
we have a lot of resources that get produced for medications, for products, services, et cetera. And at times you start to lose the meaning of why these resources are created. Why do I need to learn about it? And why do I need to communicate on it? And one of our key concepts and values that we hold true is exactly what you're speaking to, which is trying to find the relevance to the learner and ensuring that that's at the forefront of any type of learning experience that we try to, to bring. So I love what you're saying here with regards to finding the emotional connection first. Yeah, I'd be I'd be interesting to know, uh, Clark, with your background in technology, you know, knowing that a lot of uh, learning is being delivered now virtually, of course, and even digitally and asynchronously. How do you find or what have you seen as success incorporating that emotional element into a digital learning experience? Well, it, I tend to want a hook up front. So I sort of talk about the, uh, the hook that gets them to, uh, to willing to commit to the learning experience. I think there's three parts of that is that, you know, Yes, I don't. Yes, I need this, and you also need. I and I don't already know it, and sometimes you have to break down a little overconfidence. And the third thing is, and I trust that this learning experience will actually help me change that because there's a lot of times people have built up resistance to learning experiences because they recognize that they're garbage. And if you've been guilty of that, <laughs> you have to read and gender uh, uh, faith in that this experience will work. But then, you know, to me, conceptually, what you need to do is you need to hook them. And as you said, I like that, um, you know, why, the why, the what's in it for me, the consequences of having or not having this knowledge. And I think you can do that dramatically or humorously. I tend to have a predilection for the negative consequence of not having it done humorously because I sort of like black humor, <laughs> but uh, a fan of British comedies. Um, but uh, you can do it in any of those ways. And what have I seen done? I mean, we've done it in eLearn just with a simple comic that just makes fun of not having that knowledge. But I've also, uh, a fellow was telling me a story about, you know, using a compelling video. He had this challenge of trying to make used car salespeople more sympathetic, less just horribly, uh, you know, pitched at sales. And I've experienced this myself. Um, and so, but what he ended up doing was creating a video of some woman who was just so devastated after an experience with a salesperson that it just conveyed how dehumanizing it is and how, uh, and so you can really bring home these things uh, with uh, videos. There were some amazing videos on CPR done um, in the UK where they have really compelling scenarios. And this person comes running up to you and going, oh, my boyfriend, he's passed out. I don't know what's going on. Would you help? And you're looking right into the face of this person. And then you end up taking your tablet and pumping it up and down when you're giving them CPR. It's really visceral. Um, so so there are, but I, I think it's, it's making it, um, I talk about making it visceral. You really have to feel it here. And there, we have, powerful dramatic techniques to do that, whether it's humorous or, or drama, we can um, achieve that, but we have to be willing to commit, recognize the need, be willing to design that and test it and refine it until it's working um, to make that happen. But we, first of all, we have to be aware of it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Brain On. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Krista Gerhard. 
and I'm Karen Foster. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.